Lock your doors. Close the blinds. Change your passwords. This is the Dry Cleaner Cast. Welcome to the Dry Cleaner Cast, a podcast that takes a new look at the war on terror, its legacy, and espionage in the 21st century. This podcast is written, edited, and presented by Chris Carr. On this month's Dry Cleaner Cast, I'm joined by Angie Gerd. Angie runs a brilliant website called My Islam, and My Islam's goal is to counter Islamic extremist propaganda with a more accurate interpretation of Islam. With hate crimes on the rise, in Europe and America, I thought it was important to do an episode about the difference between the religion of Islam and acts of terrorism committed by political groups in the name of Islam. There is a difference between the religion and the acts of these terrorist groups such as Al-Qaeda and ISIS. I think it's very important that we understand those differences because um, personally I'm tired of having conversations with people online and with people in the real world offline, who seem to be unable to distinguish between Islam and terrorism. And I think it's very important in this day and age, with the rise of politics of the extreme, that we make a better effort to understand these things. Because in in this world, the devil is in the details. And I am just concerned, like most people, that this is all going to end badly unless we make a greater effort to understand each other. And I think it's important for all of us to educate ourselves as best as we can about these issues because these are the issues of our times and really the devil is in the details and it's going to be up to us to find a solution to these problems without allowing the extremists to do the talking for us, which I am worried is what's going on in the world at the moment. So this is why I feel this is an important episode and I hope you find it an interesting episode. So thank you again for joining me on the Dry Cleaner Cast. Just a quick note before we begin, this will be the last episode of the Dry Cleaner Cast until September. I'm taking a short summer break and the podcast will resume the first Friday of September. We've got quite a few interesting episodes lined up for the autumn, so I hope you'll find them interesting. We've got a bit of World War II, we've got a bit of... uh, espionage in moscow and we might be taking a well not a real trip but a virtual trip to the arctic to find out what's going on over there so i will be back in september so thank you so much for all your support over this last year and we will be resuming the first friday of september thank you very much Opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the filmmakers and sponsors of the film, The Dry Cleaner. Angie, welcome to The Dry Cleaner Cast. Thank you for having me. So just before we get stuck in, please can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So my background is in intelligence and counterterrorism. I was a senior intelligence analyst for the government, and I focused on counterterrorism. My portfolio primarily included ISIS and domestic anti-government extremists, so the right-wing militias and sovereign citizens in the United States. And then before that... I got my master's degree at NYU in international relations, and I focused on Middle East and intelligence studies. Um, Before that, I lived for about six years in Egypt, um, moved there when I was 
just about 15 years old, went to high school and undergrad there and um, was fortunate enough to have been around when the Egyptian revolution broke out. And more recently, um, I've been a professor teaching Homeland Security and Intelligence. So that's a nice little nutshell. Excellent. God, you've done a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Right. They're thinking, crikey, what have I been doing in my life? (laughs) Wow. And well, can I just quickly ask out of interest, what was Egypt like at that time? Because that must have been, you know, it's a historic kind of time, really. Absolutely. So I was an undergraduate student studying political science and economics, and then the revolution just broke out. And I, after kind of making sure I was telling people a story, I got a Facebook invite to go right January 24th. Um, and it was awesome. I didn't go right away because we know what happens to people in Egypt when they protest. So I kind of let some of my friends went, let them ride out the storm. And then once we saw it was a little safer, some of us went out to protest. So I wasn't part of any movement. I wasn't with any political uh, party or anything. I just kind of went out and protested as many other people did. And it was awesome. It was beautiful, uh, definitely historic. Um, and it, it took some time to convince um, my family to come out. Uh, and they eventually did the day before Mubarak stepped down. And it was um, it was awesome. It was just kind of like a very much like a festival vibe. Um, people are just selling tea on the side. There's music blasting in the loudspeaker. Um, so it was it was great. And then um, the next day Mubarak stepped down. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. It's quite a, yeah. quite an event to be at, really. Crikey. <laughs> oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Hard to top it. Yeah. No, fantastic. Well, well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Um, I wanted to have a sort of chat with you about a few things. And um, one of the one of the key things, obviously, is your excellent website, My Islam. So I was if you could just tell us a bit about what that website is and sort of why you started it. Sure. So My Islam is my baby. Um, and so with my old job uh, as an analyst, my day-to-day responsibilities um, involved me pouring over ISIS and extremist propaganda on a daily basis. Yeah. And as a Muslim, I would read uh, ISIS's uh, propaganda and I would think, wow, what BS? People are actually believing this stuff. And, um, you know, it's so well written and it's dense, it's theological content, and it sounds convincing for someone who doesn't know any better. Mm. And And honestly, even... For some people who do know better, ISIS lays out their argument pretty well, and they know what they're doing. So mm-hmm. groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda, what they do is they do like a 20-time zoom in on the Quran and highlight certain verses. Uh, sometimes they only talk about half of a verse without providing any context, historical or otherwise. Mm-hmm. They don't show you the verse in the Quran that comes before it, the one that comes after it. They don't tell you why that verse was released, um, etc. And then that's where my Islam comes in. I zoom back out. And I provide a full picture. Mm-hmm. I fill the gaps that jihadist groups have purposely omitted. Um, and essentially, my Islam, so I, I launched it uh, about a year ago, almost. Uh, June 13th will be a year. And it aims to counter extremist propaganda by using the same tools that Salafi jihadists use against them. So that means the Quran, Hadith, and the Internet. I focus on those three things. And it's meant to be a simple, easy, one-page read on topics like jihad, slavery and apostasy and Islam, or really just any topic that ISIS, Al-Qaeda, or Salafi jihadists have distorted and religiously justified. So what I've done is I've taken my training as an analyst. We were trained to write concise, short one-pagers, keep it short and simple. 
and I've done the same thing for my Islam. And every month uh, I try to put out a one page article and I break it down into three sections. First section is I, well, first I pick, I go through kind of ISIS and Al Qaeda's um, propaganda magazines. And I see, for instance, how ISIS has justified uh, enslaving Yazidi women or how they justify killing people they have deemed to be apostates in Islam. And I zoom in on that um, and see what verses or hadith they use to justify their acts. And then I uh, start writing and I break it down into three sections. So first section is how the extremist groups are interpreting this verse or this hadith. Second section is the historical context behind that Quranic verse or hadith Hmm. that are in question. And this part is crucial because it's fundamental it is a fundamental principle of interpreting the Quran that verses must be understood in the context that they were revealed under. Otherwise, the Quran can be and has been easily manipulated. Um, And then the last section, I provide the more accurate interpretation of the verse or hadith as it is commonly understood and how the majority of Muslims have understood it and practiced it. And then to answer the second question about, um, you know, why I started my Islam, Essentially, the seeds for it were planted after 9-11, right? So I'm a first-generation immigrant. My parents moved here from Egypt in the 1980s. I was still a kid when 9-11 happened, but I distinctly remember the impact it had on me and the questions I had to answer about my or about Islam and about myself immediately after. And I don't know if I was aware of it or not when I was 11, but my mission ended up becoming correcting whatever misperceptions people had about Islam, explaining to everyone why Islam is not how extremists have represented it or have portrayed it to be. And like many other Muslims and non-Muslims, 9-11 just ended up defining my future and becoming the center of my life and career. Yeah. And a couple years ago, maybe like three, four years ago, the idea for what my Islam is today really came to me. Um, there's this book I was reading called The Great Theft, Wrestling Islam from the Extremists. And it was it's by Khaled Abu Fadl. And towards the end of the book, the author talked about how there's this plethora of jihadist literature available, like in print and uh, on the internet, and how there's nowhere near enough content available to counter it. So that was really served to be the catalyst for me, reading that um, book and uh, the author's message to Muslims at the end, and I'll touch on it um, a little bit later as yeah, well. Yeah. Um, and that coupled with my with my job, with what I was exposed to on a daily basis, I was looking at this extremist propaganda, and I felt like there was a duty for me to try and do everything I can to counter it by providing what Islam truly is. Um, and it's so simple. It's just taking the exact same verse or hadith that they're using, but then just flushing it out a little bit more mm. um and then that's how my islam came about yeah no fantastic in a way it kind of reminds me um what you're trying to do is like that sort of there's that you know with the whole fake news thing that's going on at the moment where a lie goes like 10 times around the the world whilst the truth's still getting its trousers on right. i think it's the expression something like that and it's yeah it's very, you've very much been doing that exactly and a lot of things i, I teach about is this uh, especially for what i teach my students about being you know, analysts. Mm. Um, one of the pitfalls is sometimes as cognitively, the first 
piece of information that we're exposed to. It is very hard to unlearn that later on or to change that perception once you've been exposed to one fact. Um, for instance, like whatever piece of news that you see, and that's the first piece of news you're exposed to regarding an attack. Uh, it's very hard to unlearn something like that. And because we've just been consistently exposed to the extremist um, interpretation or what Islam is to ISIS and Al-Qaeda, it is very hard. Our job is very hard now to teach everyone that that is not the case and that's not Islam. But the first thing that people have been exposed to with Islam has been 9-11. Yeah. So it's been very hard to undo that the past 17, 18 years, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it's and the other thing with the terrorist propaganda again, the far right tend to use it as evidence of this sort of Muslim master plan or something, and and it's um, and I've even had people say to me, you know, ISIS, that's true Islam, and I'm like, really, honestly, you know, and it, and, and the problem <laughs> is, I mean, I, I can't come out with Quranic verse, and my mind is not good enough to be able to come out with like Quranic verses or something to kind of counter an right. arg- an argument like that on an intellectual level. Um, and it's it's so tough to talk about these things, and it's um, yeah, it's mad, isn't it? Absolutely mad. I know. So uh, so well done for doing what you're doing. I mean, one question um, is sort of in a sense. This is probably a wide question, so um, you know, feel yeah. free to answer any way you like. What is it like being a Muslim in America today? Because obviously we're in the age of Trump and so many other things. Um, and uh, I just it'd be interesting to sort of know from yeah, get a feeling of what it is like to be a Muslim today in the states. Um, yeah, so um, it's uh, this is something that my friends and I talk about uh, almost all the time. Mm. Um, we talk about our experiences and certain encounters that we've had, and I, I mean, to the best of my ability, I'll try to capture what it's like being a Muslim yeah. from my experiences and, and the experiences of other Muslims in my community. But I don't claim to be speaking on behalf of all Muslim Americans because it's a very diverse group of people. Yeah. Um, you know, that you also have um, black Muslims who have to deal with a whole um, different set of issues than Arab Muslims, right? And I think, you know, it, it depends on coming from my specific background and the, those of my friends. So you're right, it is, it, it's very, um, it is very broad mm. because it, it really depends on your gender, your ethnicity, what part of the United States that you live in. Um, and it, it differs also if you're visibly Muslim versus not visibly yeah. Muslim. Um, there's, there's so many um, factors at play, but just generally, so being a Muslim in America, it can range from having to defend Islam from people who think we're all terrorists, right? That's the most obvious thing that um, we can think of. But then, it goes down to little things like explaining to our waitress why we can't have pork or alcohol in our food. Um, uh, explaining to our friends why we don't drink um, or why don't why we don't eat or drink for 60 hours a day every month during Ramadan or why we step away for two or three minutes in the middle of a hangout to go perform one of the five daily prayers. Um, or making sure we don't say Allahu Akbar in the airport um, or essentially, or an airplane, right? Or saying anything that's identifiably Arabic in public so that we don't scare people around us, right? And it can be hard to say the least being Muslim because I sometimes we feel like we're walking on eggshells. Um, sometimes we feel like we're always on the defensive. Um, and it can be exhausting to have to kind of balance everything out like this or to constantly have to explain ourselves. And 
a lot of times we feel like we're the other mm-hmm. unless we completely assimilate to a point where we don't outwardly look or sound Muslim. And other times we don't feel welcomed and we feel excluded, right? There's a lot of stuff happening in the United States uh, politically that have made us feel even more excluded and unwelcomed. But the other time, you know, other times we have non-Muslim friends who go out of their way to include us, to accommodate us, to understand where we're coming from and make sure that we're comfortable. We have friends of ours who are not Muslims who try to fast with us a day in Ramadan out of solidarity to see what it's like. Um, So we definitely have good friend networks, but at the same time on a larger, you know, on a national level, um, we sometimes feel like we're on defensive mode most of the time because after every terrorist attack happens, there's this weird expectation um, of us to have to condemn the attack Mm. as if all, you know, 1.8 billion Muslims have had some kind of role in planning this attack with the perpetrator. Um, And it can be hard a lot of times because when, Terrorist attacks happen, and I've written about this, not only are we afraid as humans of the repercussions of this attack, and if another attack were to happen, and and us being victims of this attack, being a Muslim aside, um, but we also start to fear for our community because we know the second, once we find out that the perpetrator is a Muslim, we know what's going to happen, right? We face a lot of backlash. um, It's... targeting our community. Um, we're, we're blamed as a community for the acts of these fringe extremists. Um, and we don't have a chance to sit, process, mourn the attack um, before having to defend ourselves, before having to condemn the attack, before having to defend Islam. Um, and it's a very, it's, it's very difficult Um you know, we, we have to double down and repeat over and over again how we don't condone these attacks mm-hmm. and that we're peaceful and that we aren't all terrorists and so on. And it frustrates me because I don't think we have we should have to do that. Just as, you know, this might sound like a very weak analogy, but we don't expect all Christians or all white men to apologize for the acts of a right-wing extremist after mm-hmm. a terrorist attack, mm-hmm. right? Um, but that's how we feel uh most of the time after attacks. And not only do we, um, are, are there, are there kind of expectations for us to apologize for those attacks, but then you see a rise in hate crimes Mm. targeting Muslims uh, after an attack, or you see our mosques being targeted and, uh, women wearing the hijab are being, um, harassed or discriminated against, et cetera. And I've heard tons of stories from my friends about this stuff. Um, so, I mean, I love, to really, I love to give the example of myself, right? With the political climate that we're in and the Muslim ban and um, people being more suspicious of Muslims in the country. Uh, I tell people that, you know, I'm a first immigrant, a first generation immigrant. My parents are Muslim. They were in the country illegally for such a long time to pursue a better life for themselves here and to provide for their families back home. And funny enough, they got their green card a week after 9-11 happened when a lot of their friends are being deported. And I always tell people, you're so afraid of immigrants and immigrants' children, but I tell them to look at me. And I ended up, I'm a daughter of Muslim immigrants and I ended up working in counterterrorism. So I try to show the example of, you know, we're not here to harm. We're not here to cause 
damage. Most of us are just here to, and my family as this, when they first came, they're here to just pursue a better life opportunity that they yeah. didn't have back home. Yeah. Um, and, you know, these are just a few examples of some of the things we deal with on a daily basis. It, it's definitely difficult when it comes to matters pertaining to terrorism, but we're also dealing constantly with issues um, of identity, integrating in society, finding kind of that sweet spot, uh, sweet spot between being a Muslim and an American, mm. um, and then also just making sure that we're constantly positive representations of Islam um, to make sure that we're, you know, as with by my actions and by my deeds and my words, I am countering uh, extremism and how terrorists have defined Islam. Yeah, yeah. I mean, these um, these sort of far-right reactions to treating ordinary Muslims as terrorists, it, um, it actually plays into the hand of jihadist terrorists because um, most terrorist propaganda thrives on this idea that the West is somehow, you know, it's deeply racist, it's intolerant, and that, um, that there's no way for Muslims and non-Muslims to coexist. And um, right. and it's it, there's a strange sort of irony, I suppose, in all this because like all these nutters who claim to be fighting terrorism because or they think they're fighting terrorism by targeting an ordinary random Muslim person are actually helping terrorism thrive. Um, right. It's, yeah, and it's it's I, I don't know <laughs> I don't know what the word is, but I mean honestly, the picture you're painting is is um, it's shocking and sort of depressing and. Um, and it doesn't appear to be getting any easier for Muslims in the States at the moment. And I'm sure it's not any easier for Muslims in Britain at the moment with, we've had, you know, with Brexit and things like that. Um, you know, right. there's all sorts of issues, um, which the far right seem to be dominating and it's, um, and it's not good. Um, and the other thing about the States as well, just talk about your experiences, um, uh, daughter of immigrants. I mean, America on paper, has so many sort of positive things about it and it is a land of immigrants and yet there's this sort of crisis going on in the States at the moment. And it's just, um, yeah, it's just sort of a bit mind blowing really. Yeah. It's, um, you, you touched on it perfectly, the, what right wing groups are doing, um, and just feeling excluded, uh, for Muslims who do feel excluded in the United States or feel marginalized in the United States. Um, groups like ISIS and Al Qaeda are, very smart with the strategy that they have employed. Mm. Um, they take the experiences that Muslims are going through in the West and they purposely integrate that into their propaganda. They feed off of that marginalization. They feed off of um, anti-Muslim hate crimes. They feed off of Trump and they put his words in their videos and their, in their magazines to uh, feed off of, Muslims in the West who are feeling excluded, especially the teenagers. Mm. And it's an excellent strategy that they've been using to recruit and radicalize uh, people to join their cause. Because typically for teenagers, what you're looking for is a sense of identity, community, belonging, camaraderie. And what these groups do is offer all of that. Um, and then you kind of lace it up nicely with a bow and you tell them this is Islam and what your parents have been teaching you your whole life has been wrong. They pick up on very arcane things in the religion that many of us may not have heard of growing up. And they tell them, you know, this is why 
<clears throat> this is why I'm going to tell you what your parents have taught you is wrong. I'm going to pick this very, um, uh, this less talked about topic and explain mm-hmm. to you how everything that you've been taught is wrong. And that's what white supremacists do as well mm-hmm. when they recruit, right? This is kind of common across the board, but you're absolutely right. Um, the rise in right-wing extremism and the rise in anti-Muslim hate crimes in the West um, and something like the Christchurch shooting, for instance, is something that is used in Salafi Jihadist propaganda to mm-hmm. recruit and radicalize. And it's just this, uh, this perfect cycle and they feed each other. Um, and I don't even think they know that they're working together in a way. Well, yes, I know. I mean, gosh, they both benefit from each other. And uh, I had right. a, yeah, my previous guest uh, a while back, Julia Ebner, we talked about her book, The Rage. And she was telling me, because uh, she was monitoring um, jihadist propaganda. And when Trump was elected, the, these jihadist groups were celebrating and thinking it was brilliant because it was going to help them. And, and there'd be people who are Trump <laughs> exactly. supporters who probably think that terrorists are quaking in their boots because of Trump, but it's the opposite. So one thing that jihadist groups do, and like the far right are doing, is they take popular words and phrases and start sort of weaponizing them. So with the far right, they've kind of um, adopted like the OK symbol and other things too. And um, mm-hmm. with jihadists, they've been, you know, they've taken the phrase Allah Akbar, God is great, and they've turned it into something else. And you briefly touched upon it earlier. Do you want to tell us a little bit about why these jihadist groups, what they're trying to achieve and why they like to co-opt these sort of popular Islamic phrases? Sure. So um, essentially what they're trying to do uh, and they have a very calculated strategy is um, they're trying to divide, uh, create a divide between Muslims in the West to make the two irreconcilable. Mm. Um, they construct, they've con- groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda, they've constructed this binary us versus them worldview, and they want Muslims to make a choice. So their campaign aims to eliminate this gray zone, right? Mm. And they want to force everyone to make a choice. You can't be a Muslim and live in the West and not, either try to join ISIS or be a supporter of ISIS, right? So when the, um, in 2014, when ISIS established the caliphate, the group claimed that Muslims can no longer justify living in the West because there is now a caliphate. The caliphate has been restored according to them. And there is a duty and obligation on all Muslims to go live in this Islamic state now, right? And by refusing to join, uh, Muslims will now expose themselves to persecution by Western governments, right? And in the Beak, one of their magazines, they said, Muslims in the West will quickly find themselves between one of two choices, joining ISIS or fighting it. Mm. And they have successfully exploited um, or tried to create this divide even more by exploiting ignorance about Islam in the West and by exploiting our differences. And just like you said, they try to make it seem that it is... uh, Muslims living in the West or Islam in the West, the two in general cannot come together. So what they've done is, is basically say, oh, so you're a Muslim and you refuse to join our team. Fine. We're going to take away the words and culture that you love the most and then use that to strike fear in others. And we're going to make it as difficult as possible for you to live among them. Right. And the best example of that is Allah Akbar, which means God is great. So and it's so sad that they've weaponized this word because it's something that we say uh, every day. Uh, we recite it in our uh, in our prayers throughout the day. We have it on our jewelry. We have it. We have kind of golden calligraphy since Muslims can't have um, kind of statues or art depicting humans in our houses. Our form of art is 
uh, calligraphy. And we have a law written on our, uh, hung up on our walls. We have it in our mosques. And what is kind of, you know, I've, I've written about this. It's a law is something that um, my family and I and Arabs will sometimes use in a very colloquial and sarcastic manner. So um, I give an example, you know, if I came home from high school one day and I had a B on my report card, God forbid, um, and my parents would say like, oh, well, for a B. Basically what that means is like, it's mocking. It's basically saying, oh, so, you know, what do, what do we have here at B? Um, and there's so many other examples of us kind of using Allah Akbar as not literally meaning God is great, but it's just more of a colloquial term. And unfortunately, it has been hijacked as the final words of terrorists, right? Because if you really think about the meaning, it just says God is great. There's nothing about it that is meant to incite violence. It's saying God is great, which I'm sure most Christians and Jews who are religious um, believe in the same thing, right? We all believe God is great. Um, so they have unfortunately taken stuff like that. Um, uh, and then also, and unfortunately, this is just mostly also a media issue. Um, men with long beards who look, you know, Arab or Muslim. Um, that is something Muslims do as a sunnah. Um, but unfortunately, when, when, when Westerners see us uh, or see men with long beards, um, that will incite some level of fear among mm. people because they're kind of uneasy. They see someone who looks Muslim and they feel a little threatened. So mm. it's a whole bunch of things. It, it's words, it's actions. Um, and unfortunately that's made us uh, more careful with the words and the terms that we choose to say in public so that we don't alarm the Muslims. Um, and we try to be careful with how we appear, especially the men. Sometimes some people will be like, oh, I, I don't want people to be alarmed. Most of the time, people kind of will still carry on their regular days and dress and act how they want to act. Mm. But it, it's just a, another level um, of, you know, we have to be more cognizant of how we act and how we appear in public so that people are not afraid. Yeah, yeah. And these groups, so these jihadist groups really want to make it more and more difficult for ordinary Muslims, don't they? Right. It's a, another massive question. Um you know, what, sorry, I'm really good at big questions. I don't know. If that's, I don't know. If that's a good thing or a bad thing. I don't know. But um, definitely good. Yeah. No. Um, so, what is it? What is it like for sort of Muslims who are tackling the rise of jihadism? Um, and some, you know, what are the risks to some people who are sort of, you know, who are tackling this rise of extremist ideology? This is something that um, I, I've been able to see from both sides uh, to an extent. Um, from from my side, I've seen from my myself and my community, we've seen the rise of jihadism, and we've done everything we can to counter that. Um, on the other end, I've studied uh, and and worked on people who have chosen to go down the path or have have radicalized and 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 bought into the jihadist narrative, and it's very it's very interesting. So you know the um, the story of the British uh, schoolgirl who decided to um uh, I'm, I'm blanking on her name the one who is it the the girl um from east london who's in an um in a kind of refugee camp at the moment right. is that the one you're thinking of yeah there were three british shamir shamir bagum i think her name is yeah yep exactly her so um there was a story about her and then there was a story also about um an american muslim who was trying to come back as well yeah. another female girl yeah. and 
I remember talking with my old supervisor um, about this, and he would ask me, you know, you're, you're very much a similar position as them um, in terms of your upbringing, where you're a Muslim female in the West. Um, however, they chose this path and you chose this path. And mm. and he would kind of ask me my thoughts on this, and it would be very interesting to me because, from you know, I remember the American... Uh, the American Muslim who joined ISIS was saying, basically, I had no other choice. My family was so strict with me growing up religiously. And the only choice I had was to take on this more extremist route. And I completely differ because I was also raised in a very strict and conservative household. Mm-hmm. And they, my family wanted to make sure um, I was raised as a good Muslim. And I had all these um, obstacles and that I faced and uh, a lot of restrictions to make sure that um, Islam was still the predominant um, and kind of the main, um, how do you say, kind of played the biggest role in my life. They didn't want me to be right exposed to any kind of um, anything in Western society that would, would ruin that per se. Right. So they were, they wanted to keep a close eye and I was, I was exposed to almost the same upbringing as her based off what she said. And I chose to take a completely different route. Um, I chose to tackle it head on. I chose to pursue a career that um, that targets this and tries to counter terrorism. Um, and then there are others who, you know, who are exposed to the jihadist narrative and either because they don't know enough about Islam, they buy into it, or because they're so marginalized and they need a sense of community and identity, they buy into that narrative. Thankfully, I had a better foundation um, growing up and the experience that I had growing up with 9-11, I wanted to make sure I could do everything to counter what they were doing. The, the struggle that Muslims face in terms of tackling the right jihadism, for instance, is I know that in the UK, the the obstacles that Muslims face are much different than what Muslims face in the United States. Um, mm. I think we have it far better in the United States than Muslims do in Europe. Um, yeah. adjusting, assimilating, uh, assimilation is very hard for Muslims in Europe from what I've studied and from um, the experience I've heard from my friends. So I can see how um, second and third generation Muslims in Europe have a harder time adjusting and assimilating than their parents when they immigrated there. I've heard stories about, um, especially with the three British schoolgirls saying from the UK, you're saying, you know, blaming their parents for coming to a non-Muslim country um, and considering that to be a sin. Obviously, this is part of ISIS's narrative. Um, it's a sin mm-hmm. to live in the West. You have to come to an Islamic state. And they blame their parents for that, especially since it's so hard for us to assimilate uh, overseas. Um, they blame their parents for that. And um, they end up going down the route of radicalization. So mm-hmm. there are two ends of that spectrum. And the majority of Muslims uh take my route or completely assimilate, um, there are different, uh, the spectrum kind of, um, varies, right. But, um, and then there are, there is that fraction of Muslims who decide to take the other route and, and join. And I'm not sure if that answers your question. No, it does. It gives a good picture. I mean, it, yeah. it gives us some points where we chat about this more, but it's like, um, you know, it's, it's, if anything, from what I've read, because I'm obviously I'm I'm not an immigrant myself, but it's like it seems to be the classic um, sort of child of an immigrant kind of um, 
struggle of cult your you know the sort of the culture you've um your parents have come from versus the culture you're in now and and then on top of that that sense of uh, as a teenager trying to sort of build an identity of your own and sometimes parents can be both a positive and a negative force in your in your life with these things i mean i've i've heard stories of um you know some parents forbid um their daughters to be in a room with other men or or whatever um and right. it can create this sort of sense of confusion and rebellion and you know and when you're a teenager you just want to do what other teenagers are doing don't you you kind of right um and it and it and it creates that sort of struggle so i, I understand yeah i understand that and i suppose one of the things and um that's interesting is that there will hopefully there'll be some muslims listening to this interview um and there might be some who are listening who don't know how to identify or tackle that extremist ideology that kind of plays into that sort of looking for identity and things what would you recommend to those sort of people who can't really identify the difference or they're unsure of what's extremist and what's not because there's a lot of debate sometimes about what is extremist material and what isn't Oh, right. So, I mean, I would, I mean, I would honestly just recommend my Islam as a first source, um, mm, because mm, I think definitely. essentially what I'm trying to do, right, is a nice plug, but yeah. I'm, I'm essentially trying to parse that out for everyone. Um, initially, my my audience was not meant to be other Muslims, but, but then as, mm. I mean, right when I got started, I was like, no, all my Muslim friends would comment about how they liked the articles or how it kind of helped put things into perspective sometimes. So, um that is a good source for Muslims who are kind of not quite sure, you know, what to look at um, and, and what sources to look for and, and everything. And I provide mm-hmm. sources at the end of my articles as well. But I would, I mean, I would recommend, you know, as you're kind of trying to figure this out, it's so easy to find um, comfort and stay within the comfort zone of staying on social media or staying on Twitter um, staying within the same network of people. And that's where the danger really starts when, especially when you're going down that radicalization route, I would say, get out of that, right? Get out of that bubble. Look, look up other sources that counter your, um, your current uh, perspective or your viewpoint. Try to find things that go against that. Um, it's important to understand the other side. So if you're trying to figure out what the extremist is and what is not, try to seek out uh, answers to questions that uh, are coming from a different source. Um, it, it's a very hard thing to do. I, I, I like to recommend two things, right? To definitely find some kind of Muslim community uh, or people within your age uh, that are going through the same thing. Because the best way to kind of go through this struggle is to relate with other people because it's hard to relate with non-Muslims because they're not dealing with immigrant parents who don't understand what it's like to be a first-generation growing up in the West and balancing being a Muslim and balancing all these cultural expectations so finding a community really does help, whether that's um, in person or online. Um, hopefully that community is not like this, though. Um, and um, and uh, for myself, this this was a very unique case because I got I had a chance at the age of 15 to move to a Muslim country, to, to move to Egypt and then kind of have a different sense growing up as a teenager of being in a country where um, everyone was kind of, quote unquote, like me. Uh, they were Muslim, they were Arab, they eat the same food as me, they had the same uh, cultural or religious restrictions growing up. Um, so I had that struggle growing up here up until the age of 15. Then when I moved to Egypt, things kind of changed for me um, mm. because I had a different sense of what it was like to grow up with 
um, others who were going the same thing. And I still had to deal with the struggle, though, because now I was the American dealing with uh, having to deal with other obstacles and, and, and biases and all that stuff. So um, mm. my recommendation would be seek out other sources. Um, uh, try to find a solid community that is going through the same thing that you're going through. Um, uh, read. There are tons of books I can kind of recommend towards the end that will give you a good mm. foundation and kind of parse through um, not just what's extremist and not, but also how something became extremist or how extremists have taken this one thing and kind of turned it into um, a violent or radical um, uh, topic or, or act. Is there anything you would recommend to parents who are concerned about their children might have um, might be engaging with extremists? I, I used to kind of give talks about this, about kind of general signs for, um, uh, you know, radicalization and, um, kind of keeping your eye out on your teenagers. I remember the case, I read the case thoroughly with the three British schoolgirls, And mm. I remember, and there's, there's always these little signs, but because the people that are closest to that individual who's radicalizing will most of the time, even though they know them the most, will overlook these signs because it's a bias oh, no, no, they're just going through this phase or they're just acting out. But I would yeah. I would recommend that you exercise a lot more um, vigilance because, for instance, with the three British schoolers, I remember there were these signs and it's hindsight bias, right? After they had fled to join ISIS, the families were like, oh, I remember they said X, Y, Z, or they did this. So with them, what they did was they were straight-A students, all three girls, and then their grades started to drop um, yeah. when they as they were planning to flee to go to Syria. Um one time the girls, I think they were having a discussion. One of them was having a discussion with their family and they were talking about um, Bashar al-Assad and Syria. And I, I'm fuzzy on the details of the conversation. I don't want to botch it or, or be quoted, but essentially one of the girls said something alarming about um, the situation in Syria. That is, that is something that would have been a red flag when you look back at it. Even during yeah. the time, right? But there was maybe some, they would thought it was conversation and people were kind of posing a double bracket or something. So um, mm. there were, there, there typically are signs. You just have to be uh, vigilant and cautious. So for myself growing up, ISIS, you know, wasn't the issue that my parents were focused on. They were like, oh, they're on the internet too long. What are they doing on the internet? Um, are they talking to boys? Are they talking to girls? And that was kind of the concern. So they'd limit our hours on the internet. Um, that's when back when parenting was a lot easier, I think, for Muslim parents. Mm. So, but um, yeah, I think it just, there definitely um, are signs, uh, even with, I remember there was one um, individual here in the United States who was radicalizing and his mother started realizing that he, or his roommate started realizing that he was um, changing how he dressed to, to dressing more um, in the traditional Muslim uh, attire sometimes. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? That's absolutely fine. But it, it was that coupled with a whole bunch of other things. He was more secretive with his telephone communications. He was um, planning on traveling overseas to, to Jordan. Again, nothing wrong with that. But it was there was a whole bunch of other signs that um, in hindsight, the roommates were like, oh, we kind of... Um, looking back, it's kind of stupid that we didn't pick up on these signs that he yeah. was radicalizing. But um, that that happens more often than not where um, being so close to the individual, you tend to dismiss things as a phase or no, this is just a one-off. Uh, I would I would recommend to not dismissing those and having a conversation with your kids, especially for Muslim parents. 
yes, I know how it is being a teenager and having your family talk to you about religion constantly, but mm. explaining to them what true Islam is and that what ISIS or what extremists are doing are wrong, even if they are not going down that path, having that conversation is still great anyway, that you can't really um, go wrong with that. Yeah, yeah. And without sounding too alarmist, a lot of, um, so there are people I've spoke to who are parents online, um, friends of mine, and a lot of them are, and, and this applies both to the far right as well as Islamic extremists and any extremist group, to be honest. But a lot of parents don't realize that there are people whose daily, should we say, job is to look for your children effectively to look for you know people who are going for an identity crisis people who are you know they're looking for recruits um right. and a lot of parents seem to be very much unaware of that and um you know it, it's yeah i just feel like i need to bring that up because so many parents just seem to be blissfully unaware that there are people out there whose daily life mission is to find recruits right yeah it's it's yeah. scary and i can't imagine what these parents uh, have to deal with her going through um, just being on the other side of it and kind of um, mm. doing this as a profession. It is, I haven't even, I've never even considered what it's like to have kids and have to deal with this and um, the issue of my kids potentially being recruited or radicalized because you're right that this is, this is one element of what uh, extremist groups are doing, whether it's far right or jihadists. Um, mm. They have dedicated <clears throat> cadre of people who just, sit online and try to reach out to folks who are vulnerable or people that they can prey on to recruit to their cause. Like what we're doing? Connect with us on Twitter at DryCleanerCast. Support the show by becoming a DryCleanerCast Patreon subscriber today. Go to patreon.com slash drycleanercast. That's patreon.com slash drycleanercast. I'd like to just discuss sort of Islam and terrorism. You know, you've mentioned it before. Every day there's, you know, there's a terrorist attack committed by a group like Al-Qaeda or ISIS. There are a number of people online and offline who want to equate all, equate their actions with Islam and all Muslims. And this is leading to a rise in hate crimes, growing suspicion between sort of Muslims and non-Muslims. And both these far-right groups and jihadist groups are thriving or they're using and thriving off a clash of civilizations narrative or an us versus them narrative in your opinion what are people who equate all muslims and islam with terrorism getting wrong another big question <laughs> yeah another big answer um everything every single thing mm. um we're so hypocritical as a country for believing that isis or al-qaeda's version of islam is the true islam but at the same mm. time we're rejecting their goals, their methods, their values, but the one thing we decide to take their word for is their interpretation of Islam. Like, it it really doesn't, it doesn't make any sense, and it's very hypocritical. Um, I don't understand why we allow them to dictate the narrative, because by doing so, we are handing them the victory that they want by, mm. by having them, um, or by believing their version of Islam, that is what they want people to think Islam is. Um, and it's simply, you know, I, it's it's just not logical uh, in any way to believe that all Muslims are terrorists. And mm. what I'm about to say may sound a bit crude and insensitive, but when people tell me that they believe the majority of Muslims are terrorists, 
I tell them that there are about 1.8 billion Muslims in the world. If all of us are in fact terrorists, we'd be living in a completely different world and more people would probably be dead. I mean, it sounds insensitive, but it's just a fact. There's there's no way... um, and, it, and you just can't argue with facts. And I've, I've had people try. I've had some of my students try, but it's just, it's just not, it's just not logical when you when you look at the numbers and you look at how many of the 1.8 billion are actually terrorists. It is a fraction of a fraction, and it is a fringe of the fringe. Um, and there's there's so many things that you can that I can kind of say to. Um, to try to dissuade people from believing that. But mm. the best way to do it is through actions and by explaining it to people. Um, I like to use myself as an example, or I, I talk to people and I kind of walk them through my life, et cetera. But um, yeah, I, I I would say everything everything is wrong. I just, it, there's just no place for it. Yeah. Well, I think one of the problems in the, in the West, should I put it this way, is um, a lot of people in the West are not really kind of up to speed with, the Islamic world and and the different sort of groups and ideologies and interpretations and so on. And it's kind of like, and the analogy I've used in the past when talking to people about these sort of things is, um, and forgive me for this one, and I'm not even a football fan, so I put it as a football analogy, um, that in we have an English football team and sometimes some fans, uh, when abroad, do terrible things. So um, back in the 90s, um, it was a group of English football fans I think about 20 or 30 of them went on a kind of orgy of violence in a town in Germany. They beat a lot of people up. They even put a policeman in a coma for about three months. And these were 20 English blokes who were fighting, in a sense, for the honour of the British football team who have just lost a football match. And I asked people, do these people represent British people? (laughs) You know, do they represent you? Because do you, you know, when when you're on holiday, do you go out and beat people up? Do you go out and put policemen <laughs> in comas? You know, is that what you do on holiday? Now, if somebody said yes, then I'd be a bit worried. But most people <laughs> don't do that. And it's quite clear. And it's the same like with the far right. As a, you know, white Western male, I understand the BNP and those horrible groups. I understand who they are. I know they're bad people. And I know, in a sense, what they're about and how to avoid them. And I'm sure it's the same for Muslims too. When you look at Al Qaeda or ISIS, you know, in a sense, they are the equivalent of these uh, of the BNP um, or any other sort of far right group. And in a way, the way I've put it, sometimes I don't know if it's the best way to put it, but it certainly, I think, helps people understand. Is I sort of see them as the far right of Islamic culture and Islamic worlds. They're the kind of the intolerant people. They're the people who, you know. Um, are concerned about modernity and whatever, and they have political aims and goals, dominating regions, whatever. And they are using the language of Islam to achieve those ends because they know they can, you know, recruit people and get people on their side. Um, And they can use that sort of, oh, look at the terrible Westerners over there kind of thing to recruit people. Is that a fairly accurate, (laughs) what do you say, analogy of this? No, it's absolutely, no, you're absolutely correct. I, um, if I may use also a football soccer analogy, um, Go for it. when, when, um, I, I'm not sure what soccer team you support, so forgive me for this, but so I'm sure you've heard of Muhammad Salah. Um, mm, I have, and, yeah. and my dad always jokes that Muhammad Salah has done more good for Islam than most sheikhs have. And I mean, yeah. it, he's obviously exaggerating, but essentially what he's, 
trying to say is Salah has just done an amazing job of positively positively representing Islam by just being himself Mm. and being a good Muslim and an excellent soccer player, right? So what we've seen with the rise of Salah is um, all these videos have come out of little kids who get on their knees and perform the sujood after making a goal, just like Salah does after he he makes his goals. And obviously not all Muslims are as talented or have as much media coverage as Salah does, but he's 100% more of an accurate representation of true Islam than ISIS and Al-Qaeda will ever be. And this is like an example I like to talk about because he's, he's positively represented our faith um, in a way where I can, I can point and say, this is the example that you should be looking at versus ISIS and Al-Qaeda. And when we, when we see um, Liverpool fans chanting for Salah, and I think there was a chant where it's like, if, something about him being a Muslim and then wanting to be a Muslim too. I can't remember the chant uh, off the top of my head, but that is something that makes me happy because it's a positive uh, representation. There's a positive image of Islam that is because of him. And that is the example that I like to give because he's so well, his name is well is recognized now um, that I can kind of say, look at him versus ISIS and Al Qaeda. That is what your everyday average Muslim. I mean, he's very devout. Mm. He's a very good Muslim, but from the actions and what we've seen and read about him. But um, that is what you should be looking at versus ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Um, and I hope people think of us as him versus them. Yeah, yeah, I hope so too. Because, um, yeah, we've also got as it's Samo Farah as well, the Olympic athlete who's, yeah. uh, who's amazing. And, um, yeah, so many you know, positive role models. And we need, you know, we need to, especially in films and things, we need to definitely make a better effort of putting more positive role models out there. Right. Yeah, it is, um, you know, Al-Qaeda and ISIS are dominating the conversation when it comes to Islam, and it's it's not good. Yeah. Um, quickly, on the flip side, so I have spoken with some Muslims, both online and in person, who think there are absolutely no links between Islam and terrorism, none whatsoever. Um, and they also view any government counter-terrorism effort as deeply racist and unnecessary. What you know, you've you've sort of dealt a little bit with counterterrorism things in your experience. What would you say to Muslims who have views like that? This is a, a really good question um, because because of the nature of my profession, I found myself caught in the middle between uh, working in counterterrorism for the government and also being uh, a Muslim myself and and being a member of the Muslim community. And mm. you can imagine it was a bit tricky. Um, you know, whenever my friends find out what I do, the first question uh, most of them will ask me is, um, am I spying on other Muslims? Am I tracking their devices? Um, am I supporting the government in killing Muslims overseas? Um, sometimes it's a joke. Sometimes it's not. It's not. Um, and there's this, there just, as, just like there is this misperception and so much misunderstanding about Islam and the true nature of Islam and what Muslims are like in the West there's that same misperception of what the government does regarding Muslims. And for good reason, right? Um, Post 9-11, there were a lot of mistakes made. And since 9-11, that has changed and has improved. And the government has um, done a better job of not profiling Muslims um, Mm. like um, they did immediately post 9-11, right? And um, I... What I in my in my in my previous job, I found myself in this very unique position where I was an ambassador for the Muslim community within the government um, 
to represent my community, but I was also ambassador for the government among the Muslim community. Um, and at, at first, there was a little bit of resistance, there was a little bit of caution um, from certain family members, from certain people in my community about the nature of my job. Um, and and it, eventually that got better. And eventually um, that kind of turned completely and people were kind of okay with it. Um, but what I tell them is, um, I, I talked about what my day-to-day job is. I tell, we were a very transparent agency, so it was fine to kind of talk about this stuff. I talk about the benefits of being a Muslim working in counterterrorism. And I tell them, you know, it's better for one of us to represent our community in the government versus no Muslim at all, right? Um, and I'm there to dispel the myths, to dispel and kind of uh, explain some preconceived notions that people have. Um, and I talk to them about the amount of, there's so many regulations that are imposed on us as analysts to uphold civil rights and civil liberties in the United States, to not infringe on the rights of U.S. citizens. Um, I tell them that, you know, social media platforms have more access to their private information than the government ever will. Um, We don't have, you know, the government doesn't have access to that kind of stuff. Facebook and Twitter do. Um, And I also talk to them, right, because the issue of classifying terrorists is a hot topic in the Muslim community. And and, and, and this is something I've heard over and over and over again, um, where it's essentially, well, why is the brown Muslim guy labeled a terrorist when the white guy is not labeled terrorist? And what I, this is a very contentious topic. And what I tell them is, I talk to them about how in my previous agency, how we classify terrorists. And we use the FBI definition which is three points. Um, One, it has to be the unlawful use of force or violence against persons or property. Two, it has to be to intimidate or coerce a government, the civilian population or or any segment thereof. And then three, it has to be in furtherance of political or social objectives. So if it hits two out of those three, so if it's unlawful use of force and it's meant to intimidate a civilian population, but it, there is no political or social, social objective, it cannot be terrorism. So if it's a school shooting, if it's regardless of the race of that individual, if it doesn't hit all three, it cannot be classified as an act of terrorism and or the person cannot be classified as a terrorist. So I talked to them about um, cases that most people in the public haven't heard of um, or even ones that they have heard of. So Dylan Roof, for instance, um, he hits all three. He had a manifesto. He was trying to intimidate a segment of the population, and he used unlawful use of um, uh, force and violence against persons or property. He hit all three, and without a doubt, he's a terrorist. Um, and then some people get into that, well, it's a hate crime debate, and there's a fine line between hate crime and, and terrorism. But um, there are white terrorists who he have classified yeah. as such at our agency, um, and that just doesn't get as much coverage because what the media classified as, as a terrorist has nothing to do with what the government classifies as a terrorist, right? Yeah. There's a big difference. There's a big difference. Yeah. Correct. And um, I think people don't understand the definition of terrorism. It, people can get really hung up on the labels and forget mm-hmm. that it is still, whether it's terrorism or a violent act or a school shooting or a robbery, it is still an act of violence and it's still bad and it still generates fear among mm-hmm. the people. But we do get hung up hung up on the labels, mostly because of how terrorism and Muslims have become synonymous. The, the kind of you know, when you think of terrorism, I think the first thing people think of, hopefully not, but you know, 
they think of Islam mm. or Muslims or Al Qaeda or mm. ISIS, right? They don't think mm. of a white guy um, mm. who's part of a right wing uh, extremist group. And I think that's why the label matters so much. But um, I I try to to kind of by explaining the nature of my job and explaining the terrorism mm. label and by explaining everything that I've done, I try to show them that um, I try to break down and 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 poke holes in in these. Um, the myths that people have about the government, like I do with with people who are not Muslim who don't understand my faith. Yeah. Well, this is it, and you touched upon the point, the media and the government are totally separate things. Right. Um, and um, I think people forget that sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> um, especially in this, this you know, this debate. Um, you know, it's, yeah, it's an interesting one. I don't know why people don't understand that but um maybe that's a whole other podcast topic that yeah one. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear that's a show idea there but so um well here's another area i mean so i'd like to talk to you about what non-muslims like myself could be doing better to help muslims who are tackling these issues um and you know i don't know what the situation is in the u.s uh but in the uk we do have issues um in the past, in which members of the of the left and the far left have actually shared stages and platforms with individuals and organisations that have links to terrorism, or at least have um, ideologically support the aims of certain terrorist groups. Um, and I've even witnessed some far left far left groups called terrorist anti imperialists. And there's even a book, um, what's it called, The Prophet and the Proletariat. <laughs> and some of these. Yeah, and there's some groups out there who like to equate these, you know, want to think of Al-Qaeda. I don't know so much about ISIS, but certainly with Al-Qaeda, they sometimes like to equate them, or at least with the um, the sort of insurgency in Iraq. They like to paint them as a far, as a sort of French resistance-type World War II group. Mm-hmm. Um, and this isn't helpful, and this is definitely not going to be helpful for the Muslim population in any way. No. What can non-Muslims be doing sort of better on this issue of terrorism today? I think it, it really can just be as simple as um, educating themselves more on this matter. Mm. Um, mm. It, you know, again, I, I go back to my Islam or introductory um, books and websites that provide a foundation for those who are seeking to know more about Islam and terrorism um, that aren't too dense and, and stuffy theological stuff, right? Um, it's, I know how dense the Islam and reading interpretations can be, and, and that's why I try to simplify everything, uh, simplify it for everyone in my Islam. It's also important to understand how both far-right groups and selfie jihadists um, are exploiting people's ignorance of Islam and using that to their advantage, right? So, um, and, and we've talked about how they have used hate crimes and everything to feed on marginalized and excluded um, um, Muslims in the West, right? But, um, Another thing, you know, it, it's important for non-Muslims to to do everything um, they can to make sure that extremist groups' propaganda doesn't succeed, right? By by attacking Muslims after a, a terrorist attack happens that's carried out by a, a Muslim perpetrator, um, we are playing into that narrative. So it's important to be uh, educated and knowledgeable on this topic to stand up against attacks targeting the Muslim community post-attack, right? Um, and that doesn't mean people have to be experts. It's just have that general understanding um, to better defend unsolicited attacks against Muslim communities. Right. Um, and, you know, non-Muslims um, 
you know, should be able to speak out loudly on behalf of demographics and groups of people who have been either categorized as terrorists via stereotyping and generalizations. Because unfortunately, you know, this is very sad, but it means more coming from non-Muslims than it does from us. When a non-Muslim stands up and defends us, um, people will listen more than they will listen to us because we will always be accused of being more biased or that um, it just doesn't mean as much coming from a Muslim as it does coming from a non-Muslim. And there isn't any kind of duty on them to do this, but if when they do come to our defense, and, and many do, um, most of the time we do feel isolated or worried or helpless. Um, and this is, you know, just in the aftermath of an attack while we're still mourning and processing um, um, the issue or trying to warn the victims, um, especially when the perpetrator is a Muslim, when non-Muslims come to our defense, it means it, it helps us cope with this better. Um, and I know this may not sound like a big deal, but it, it really is to us because we feel after an attack uh, vulnerable on, on two fronts. Um, and I think personally, another thing that non-Muslims um, can do is just come out to our mosques, come to our events, come have a Ramadan feast with us. Our food is amazing. Um, and we're open to everyone. You know, our mosques are always open to non-Muslims or anyone who wants to come in. Um, if you want to come share a meal, if you want to just hang out and watch a game with us, um, that is something that I don't think, I can't really think of a better way to come together and to um, understand the Muslim community more than just coming to our events or coming mm -hmm. to have dinner with us. Um, it's just, it's just the best way to understand the Muslim community more and to share a meal, right. And have these discussions. Um, and, and it may just be on a small scale, but that, that I think that's more than enough. Yeah. Yeah. No, well, this is it. The, it. the small things make a big difference on the flip side of that. Is there anything, Muslims could be doing better to help non-Muslims better understand Islam versus extremist ideology and groups. Yeah, so um, there are Muslims out there doing a lot of great work to help non-Muslims mm. better understand Islam. Um, and, you know, even anything as little as just being positive walking representations and showing others mm. by their words and actions. Um, <clears throat> there definitely can be more that can be done, especially when we're talking about um, tackling extremist ideology. So, in the same book that I was mentioning earlier about the one, uh, The Great Theft with Khaled Abul Fad, mm. um, in the book, he talks about, he highlights two obligations that are incumbent on Muslims to save the soul and the, repu and the reputation of Islam. The first one is, become as educated as possible on Islam to attain the legitimate power to define the faith. And then second, take on the position of defensive jihad, right? So this is a nonviolent form of jihad, right? Just through literature to protect Islam from the onslaught of um, perverted interpretations and disinformation that, uh, and disinformation that extremists have generated. So essentially in order to, ex to counter the extremist ideology um, and help others understand Islam, there is a duty on, on us to um, be well-versed in our religion. Um, just mm -hmm. like the salvages are, well-versed in the Quran or right wing Shemus or well-versed in the Bible, we need to have a better grasp of all the ins and outs of our scripture to authoritatively refute extremist ideology. And, you know, just because someone's a Muslim, um, you know, I, I think I, I have to kind of give the disclaimer. It doesn't mean that there is a burden on them to have to spend the rest of their life defending yeah. their faith course, um, yeah. or, you know, everyone has their day-to-day -day job, but for some people like myself and other people in my Muslim community, this is something that 
I love to do. It, and it, trust me, it can be exhausting at times. I'm having to constantly defend, constantly explain, but this is something that I've chosen to do and I love doing. Um, and I think those two points that Khaled um, Abu'l-Fadl highlights um, are, I think, very important. Yeah, no, definitely. So we are getting close to wrapping up. Uh, and before we do, uh, I'd like to ask you, first of all, is there anything important we may have missed that you'd like to chat about? Yeah, so, it, I mean, if I haven't already um, talked about this enough, I think it's extremely important to just talk to the other, right? People mm. who we tend to misunderstand the most or people that... Um, we think we hate the most are the people that I think we should make even more of an effort to talk to more. And I, I really can't stress talking to people enough. I do this all the time. Um, especially when it's someone, for instance, who, um, I think I would be 100% um, opposed to their views. Right. So one instance, there was someone I was on a, a recent trip and there were, um, there was a group of, uh, Israelis with us on, on the, um, on the hike. And, um, the second I heard that, you know, I know some people would shy away from talking to them or they know that we'd have differing opinions politically and they would maybe just avoid having a conversation. But I jumped right into it and I was like, tell me about yourself, you know, everything. And the guy turned out to be Palestinian who was born and raised in Israel. And it ended up being this amazing conversation about identity, about fitting in or, or lack thereof. Right. I mean, he had, he had such an identity crisis being a Palestinian born and raised in Israel. He doesn't fit in with the Arabs. He doesn't fit in with the Israelis and he doesn't know where he belongs. And he's had to kind of kind of craft his own identity for himself. And we ended up becoming friends. And I talked to him about my identity. She's growing up in the United States. And it's just, um, I don't, I don't mean to romanticize this, but um, I know too often that it can be frustrating sometimes and, and futile just talking to the other person. Um, but another example I like to give is one where I had a former coworker of mine and he, his son-in-law genuinely believed that all Muslims um, are terrorists. And um, I told him, all right, uh, bring him over for dinner. And um, I, I had him, um, I, I had my, my coworker and um, his family and son-in-law, everyone come over to my family's house for this huge feast. And um, I was surprised that he showed up, but he did. And the entire night we talked about religion, we talked about politics, and um, even my Pope, my former coworker, he himself, we had a, a long um, a car ride one day for a conference we were going to, and he's a devout Christian. He's the complete opposite of me. He's a war veteran. He's a lot older than me, um, devout Christian, doesn't have any Muslim friends, and you know, he's like, tell me about this Islam thing. And I just started talking to him about all the similarities we have uh, with Christianity. And when his son-in-law came up for dinner, that dinner completely changed his perspective on Muslims. He left that night saying, these are some of the nicest people I've ever met, but it's, it's these conversations and these interactions that we need to have. So just talking and inviting people over, even the most unlikely candidates, even the people who, you know, you hear someone who thinks all Muslims are terrorists. Um, the first thing that comes in your mind is not, Hey, let's have him over <laughs> for dinner. Um, but if we don't do that, how else are we going to get across to some people? Um, so I think if we don't try to understand the other or try to at least explain ourselves, we're going to remain in this perpetual state of ignorance and fear. Yeah. What well, is it? In a way, it's sort of it's human, our humanity it gets us into these situations and it's our humanity. It's the way it's going to get us out. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think this these conversations with people, it's easier said than done, and there are times where it can be exhausted. Um, and actually, even I think talking to people physically is always better than talking to people virtually as well. But that maybe is a whole other topic. Yes. <laughs> um, but it, but at dinner sounds fantastic. I think it's brilliant that happened. That's fantastic. Yeah. So um, one one last question, if I may. Um, how has this journey affected you as a woman of faith? Oh, so. This is, it's definitely affected me in a lot of ways, right? Because um, from the American standpoint, right, there's certain expectations of women. Yeah. And then similarly, within the Muslim community and among Arabs, there are, they have their own expectations um, of women. Mm. And being a woman has not made any of this any easier. Uh, but it has, it has given me a very unique perspective on both sides. And I always joke that, you know, I probably would have had a better career in the circus because I've had to perform this balancing act my whole life. <laughs> and I mean, and as, as have other women, right. And in, in similar positions mm. as myself. Right. But, um, some of the struggle and some of the, um, the obstacles I face kind of everything from how I choose to dress, who I, who I interact with my, um, my job choice, um, when I decided to get married and, you know, and that goes on and on. And, you know, there were all these expectations for me to get married right after college and not pursue a career. But then at the American side of things, well, no, um, you know, you got this degree. There's these high expectations to perform and to do X, Y, Z. And when I did pursue my career, right, we've talked about this. My my field of choice was definitely an issue at first. I didn't pursue the more um, traditional um, uh, route of, you know, being a doctor or a pharmacist or a, or a lawyer or an architect, which are the preferred, uh, uh, careers of choice. Right. But, um, there were a lot of, um, personal and religious obstacles I had to overcome and sacrifices I had to make to hold my ground and continue, um, not just working, but pursuing the career I wanted yeah. and pushing off, um, marriage for a little bit until I was ready, until it was organic. Right. There's this immense pressure on Muslim women to, um, to get married right away. And, you know, I, I just kept pushing up until the time was right. Um, and it, and it finally happened when, when it, when the right time came and, um, but because there was just so much pressure, um, I just had to keep working harder and, um, just feeding my ground. And it was, it was really difficult because, um, I didn't really have any role models growing up. Um, there weren't any Muslim American females that I could look up to that were in a similar position as myself and were pursuing a similar career path, or at least none that I have heard of. Um, Cause especially if they were in the, in the CT or the counterterrorism field, I probably didn't hear about them. Right. Um, so a lot of times I've had to kind of question and doubt myself. And I still do um, just because it's, it's just a very niche path that I've chosen. Um, and it's just kind of balancing expectation from both sides. It's, fitting the, the, um, whatever image, uh, I have to kind of fulfill as a, as a Muslim woman, but also an American, uh, it's a lot, yeah. um, but it, it's definitely, um, given me a very unique perspective and a very unique story to tell. Yeah. Um, and I talk to other girls who are younger than me about this all the time to try to kind of give them that push, you know? Yeah. Well, hope, I mean, hopefully you are all becoming a role model for other, other girls too. You know? Um, oh, I hope so. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as I was saying at the beginning, God, you've done so much. It's brilliant. Um, 
you know uh it's no seriously well done it's uh you know you had a fantastic career from what i can see and this is a very positive project and um you know and i wish you all the best with my islam because i think it's a very you know it's a very important thing and um and i think you know it's brilliant from what i've seen of it i think it's great thank you so much so um where well where can listeners find out more about you and your work check out the my islam project on the website so it's www.myislamproject.com I'm also on um, Twitter and Facebook uh, under my, the Myaslam Project. And then my personal Twitter is uh, at Angie's List, so A-N-G-I-E-S-L-Y-S-T. Um, and that's where you can find me and you'll see me posting articles uh, on Myaslam and other things as well. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Like what we're doing? Support the show by becoming a Dry Cleaner Cast Patreon subscriber today. Go to patreon.com slash drycleanercast. For more information about the podcast, visit our website at drycleanercast.co.uk. Thanks for listening.